I shared this story last week, um, and I, the, the point is the same, so I'm going to use the exact same story, okay? I know that's not cool. I'm going to do it anyway, all right? Because I think it captures uh, what it is we're trying to do so well. So the story goes that there was a reporter who was covering the story uh, of a Scotland Yard detective who was really good at discovering counterfeit money, and he was... He was the best, and so this reporter asks him the question, you know, how in the world are you so good at identifying this counterfeit money? I mean, you're not able to study something that hasn't been made yet. How, do you, how can you spot it? And he said, it's not easy, but it is pretty simple in concept. He said, the way you identify counterfeit is you study the true, the real thing, the authentic currency so thoroughly and so well that you can recognize nuance and differences of any kind and you can spot that which isn't true. And last, year we, last week, we applied that to, would you know the, the counterfeit Christ, the, the uh, antichrist, would you recognize him if he were in our world today? Because he's coming, if he's not already here, and this is something that Revelation teaches and tells us is coming, the Bible teaches and tells us that there's somebody who is going to rise to power, a global geopolitical power, who's going to have great charisma and, and the ability to unite nations in such a way that the result is essentially a one world government. And if you've noticed, we're a pretty divided world, that's pretty hard to do. And that this person is going to have power and, and communication ability as well as supernatural powers to be able to do things that are going to cause people to go, he's from God. That's going to be what most people are going to think. Something along the lines of, well, I'm following him because I've been waiting for somebody I can trust and follow for a long time, and that's the first leader I've seen that I think I can count on and believe in. And even if they're thinking about it kind of from a worldly mindset, they're going to be kind of all in on that person. And as we read about this future history in Revelation, that's the mindset that many people are going to carry. Now, I want you to think, we're going to finish this, we're going to finish what we started last week, which is chapter 13. We did the first 10 verses. We're going to do the rest of the chapter today. And, And the shift is subtle. The shift from one character to the next character is the difference between the true Christ and the true gospel versus an antichrist and a false gospel. So the principle is the same, right? If you study the truth and you, you know the truth so well, you're going to recognize the fake when it confronts you, okay? But you have to know the truth that will set you free. You have to know that. And we, so we said last week that, you know, the question was, why does it matter? It, it matters that you know the truth. Why? Because if you don't know the truth, then you're going to be deceived. And we said the truth was not just the written word, but we certainly said the Bible is your source of truth, the written word. But we said, ultimately, that's because Jesus is the living word, and he is the way and the truth and the life in his own words, John 14, 6. Well, today we're focusing on the message of the one who called himself the way and the truth and the life, Jesus. The message of the gospel, which is, if you say this is truth and this represents all truth and all truth is God's truth, you'd zoom in to just this sliver called the gospel, recognizing that this gospel influences and affects all truth. So while we're focusing in on the narrower point if you will, of what is the good news, we need to recognize that this truth is the foundational truth to all truth. 
if we get this wrong, then we're not going to recognize the false teachings that are already out there and that will continue to come and will be even more convincing when it comes from somebody who you look at and you go, wow, I think I can trust him or her. So this second character that we're going to look at today is called the second beast or the false prophet. And this is going to be somebody that you're going to look at and you're going to think, sorry, this is going to be someone you look at and you think, I think I can trust that person. That person doesn't scare me. That person seems harmless. And that's exactly how he wants to be seen. And that's exactly what he isn't. Okay? Now, before we jump into 13, I want to take you to a couple of other passages. I want to take you to Mark 1.15, and then I'm going to take you to Luke 4. 18 through 21. So let's go there. And we've done this a couple of times, and I don't want us to miss this. This is why I keep going back. When you ask me the question, what is the gospel? First of all, I'm going to say, good job. Somebody's finally asking the right question, because we all hear the word gospel, and we all, if I was to ask for definitions from the room, I'd get a bunch of different answers. Okay, and there'd be some overlap, and there would be some things that are not correct. Let me just let you hear it from the words of Jesus, okay? So in Mark 1.15, Jesus is speaking, and he says to, um, he's talking to, um, his disciples are right there with him, and I don't, I'm not surprised that there are other people there, and he says this, basically he says, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the gospel, or the good news. Gospel literally means good news. Okay, and it can be any kind of good news. Hey, they're giving away, you know, cars at this dealership. That's good news, okay? Um, it's just not the good news. It's not the best news that you could get, okay? He said the time is at hand, the time is here, and that time, that word for time is not chronos. It's not the kind of time like what time is it or minutes and hours. This is a, a, a moment of moments. This is a moment that's kind of pregnant with meaning. It's a, it's a time that's significant and you won't forget it. And that is, Jesus is saying the time has come, and this is 2,000 years ago as Jesus is inaugurating his ministry. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And I think we read over that and we go, the kingdom of God has come near. And we go, or, or no, we, re, we read over that and we hear, repent and believe the good news. And we go, okay, well, what's the good news? Because when we hear the kingdom of God is near, it doesn't register to you and me that that's good news. Because it doesn't sound like good news to you and me. But to them, that was huge. Because they were awaiting a king who would deliver them from their oppressors. We don't think we live under oppressors. We could debate that. But at least outwardly, we, live, we don't live under oppressors. We're pretty free. Americans, we're pretty free. We can pretty much do within the bounds of the laws that we have. We can go where we want to go. We don't have to worry about going from one state to the next. And we can travel through our country, and we can pretty much do what we want to do. We're pretty free. We're not under a totalitarian regime, whether it be communist or fascist or some other kind. We're not, we don't live under that, okay? So we're not thinking in terms of we need, we need to be delivered, although that's probably debatable, okay? All right, so Jesus is speaking to people who do, 
They, they're like under the power of Rome, the emperor of Rome. They're being led by what they would consider pagan leaders, and they are the kingdom, you know, the nation of Israel, the people of God, and they want to get back to the days of David when we had the, the, theocracy and they ruled, and, and they were under the, the leadership of God through the king that they, he had given them. So it was good news for the Jews in Israel on that day to hear the kingdom of God is near because they didn't feel like it. They'd gone 400 years without hearing from any prophets or priests or anybody that was really speaking on behalf of God. 400 years. So, when they, so Jesus stands up and says this, and this is, this is going to get people's attention, and it does. The kingdom of God is near. But he gives them an action, a call to action. Repent and believe the good news that I just said, which is that the kingdom of God is near. Now, let's go to Luke 4, and let's look at... Um, what the good news looks like. And this is in part, okay? But Jesus is um, in his own village in Nazareth. He's, he has started his public ministry. It's still early in that period of time. And he is in the synagogue, and he's um, been given the opportunity to speak to the people in the synagogue. And he's handed a scroll, and I don't, know if he, I don't remember if he gets to pick the scroll or if it's already selected in advance. God can work either way. I don't have a problem with that. And he's handed the scroll Isaiah, in the scroll of Isaiah, he unrolls, and he reads this portion of Isaiah that's a prophecy about, this, about the coming Messiah. And he reads this as the Messiah, though the people just see Joseph and Mary's son, the carpenter's son. They just see this ordinary guy. And he reads it, and then at the end he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, as if he's the Messiah. Okay? And that causes quite the stir. But let me just read to you what it actually says. This is what the scroll says out of Isaiah, starting in verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Jesus is speaking. He's reading. He's quoting Isaiah's words, which are from God. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. That means covered me with oil. That means covered me. That's a a symbolic way of saying you're drenched with this authority. Because he has anointed me to do what? And then he's going to list. First of all, he's going to give a summary statement to proclaim good news to the poor. And that's poor in spirit, not just poor financially. What's poor in spirit? It means you're humble. It means you're receptive. It means I know I need something. And then he gives, he breaks it down. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which would have been the year of Jubilee, which happened every 50th year. So why is this good news? Why is the kingdom of God being near good news? Because it sets people free, it opens people's eyes to what's real and true, and it leads to you receiving the favor of the Lord in in kind of so many words, okay? Um, What do we need to be freed from? Because we're like, we just said we're free, we're not in a totalitarian regime. We don't need to be freed from a government. And I would say, well, what if we did need to be? Right? What says that can't happen here? What says that won't happen here? Why is there no mention of the United States in the, in the future when we read Revelation? Is it because we're irrelevant? Is it because we're no longer? We don't know. But it can happen here, just like it's happened in the Roman Empire, in the Greek Empire, in the Babylonian Empire, in the Medo-Persian Empire, in the, Babylon, uh, in the Assyrian Empire. Oh, and I just named the big ones. Right? And we've only been around 250 years, so we're not even one of the big ones yet. Okay, so let's not get too comfortable. 
But he says, you can be set free even if you are in prison, and that's what the gospel does. So I can be in prison, and I can be in prison for for something I did that's illegal, or I can also be in prison to or chained to any kind of addiction you want to name. I can be enslaved to a, a bad temper. I can be enslaved to trying to climb the career ladder that makes me, you know, I want to make the the most money, or I want the respect that I deserve, or I want to be successful in the eyes of my my family, or I want, you know, my my husband or wife to see me in a way that, and so I'm going to do whatever I need to do to get them to see me the way I want them to see me, or I'm in prison to pornography, or you name it, right? We can go down a whole list of things that we can be, and many of us are, enslaved to. And it would be good news to us if we believed that we could be set free from that. Okay, so now you're starting to get a sense of what people would have heard as they would have heard that. What about sight for the blind? I don't see anybody with a seeing eye dog in here, so we're like, well, we don't need to worry about that one because nobody in here is blind. Well, he's not just talking about physically blind, literally blind. He's talking about something more profound than that. He's talking about spiritual blindness. Okay, he's talking about not being able to see what's right in front of you because your eyes are covered with a lens that doesn't allow that, and it's only going to be removed by the grace of God. And maybe you don't even realize it. In the movie The Matrix, Neo, the main character, it opens with he's seeing a world that's not even real. It's all an illusion, and he doesn't even know it. He has to have somebody else remove the blinders so that he can see what's really there. That would be somebody else, grace. Somebody else giving sight to the blind. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. Being able to see what's really there. So if it feels like we live in a world with a bunch of lemmings and everybody's just following somebody down until they get to the cliff and they jump off and so they well, I'm just going to jump off too. Those are people who are blind. And I'm wondering and I'm asking you the question, are you blind? Because the way Scripture talks, we don't even know. It is God's grace that you even realize that you need him to help you see. And then he says, set the oppressed free again, and then proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that, the two, two of the big things that happened in the year's favor was that if you were a slave, you were set free. And if you had lost your land or sold your land, you got it back. And every piece of land in God's kingdom belonged to a clan, a family in a clan in a tribe of Israel. And, eventually, and it was always yours. It just sometimes you would sell it or lease it, and somebody else would use it for a while, but it always came back. And that was God's basic plan against, for welfare, and, and um, it was his plan for uh, as far as criminal justice system because sometimes slavery was a way to, to carry out a sentence. And it was God's basically, you want to talk about social justice, look at the Bible, okay? And you can see that God had a plan for all of this way before it was called that. Okay, just just call it justice. Okay, biblical justice. If you need an adjective, all right. So now, that's just a taste of why the kingdom of God is good news. And I don't know if you get that or not. But when you look at the news and you go, "Well, this is really this this is I hate the way things are going in our nation," then ask yourself the question: Well, what would make it better? And when you start making your list, there's a good chance that the things on your list are the things the kingdom of God provides. So before you get a little too um, you know, blowing off the kingdom of God? Well, maybe you ought to think in, in terms of, well, maybe this is the only hope we have for a world and a, a nation that actually is doing what should be done. Because I think many of us have a gut sense of what it should be like. We just don't want to give God the credit to think that he could do that. He's already done it. 
He's already done it. And just like they didn't understand it in the days of Jesus, most of us don't get it either. That's why we don't talk about the kingdom of God. We don't get it. We don't get the church. And it's all part of God's plan. And you're not going to get it by just listening to a sermon a week. You're going to have to dig into God's word. You're not going to recognize a false gospel if you don't know the real thing. You're not going to recognize it. And you're going to be what the bulk of the world is going to do going down the road that is broad and leads to destruction. And you're going to think you're following God and you're following his art enemy. So 13, chapter 13 of Revelation should help us with this. And I hope you'll get this. Okay, so last week we looked at the, the first beast. He came out of the sea and the first beast... He's just called the beast in chapter 13, but in other places in Scripture, John, same writer, calls him the Antichrist, capital A, the Antichrist. Not one of a bunch of little a Antichrists that have been in history, but the one that will end it. He'll, he'll help usher in the end, okay? All right, the second beast is who we're going to focus on today, and he is called, among other things, the false prophet, and it actually calls him that here, Okay? And his job is to kind of pick up the baton from the Antichrist, who's kind of that global one-world leader, and he's going to become that global one-religion leader. Okay? Uh, I don't know if you've noticed this. This has been years. I, I remember seeing it the first time we were flying to Curacao one time on American Airlines, which is typically who we fly. And, they, and it would, boldly they, they advertise their one-world partners, American Airlines, their American Airlines and their One World Partners, and I'd always kind of cringe and do some of that and then get on the plane and hope I make it. And I'm not saying that American Airlines has any clue what they're writing or talking about in their branding. I certainly don't think they're signing up for the Antichrist or anything like that. But it, it, what I, the reason I shared is because this mindset is already in our world, this mindset of bringing it all together. The whole idea of the United Nations, the whole idea of, well, let's just all have one currency, let's not have any borders, all of that is just preparing my hearts and minds to embrace what will eventually come underneath these two men, if they're men. Okay? It's just the slide is already slippery and greased. It's just going to make it easy. Okay? Now, the goal isn't to fight that. The goal is to recognize it so that we are prepared to respond to it. Okay, because look at how this chapter ends. Verse 18, this calls for wisdom. What calls for wisdom? How to live in light of what we're getting ready to read. Look at verse 10. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness. Well, why would he tell them that they, the believers, they need to be patiently enduring and, and that they need to be faithful? Because he's just told them, some of you are going to get captured and put in prison and some of you are going to die for your faith. And you know it because I'm telling you it's going to happen and you need to this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness. You need to know that that's coming. Prepare your hearts and minds for that because this life is a blip in eternity. It's a drop of water in the ocean of time, and time does not stop. The future does not stop in the sense of God, ultimate eternity. Okay? So maybe, our, maybe we're due for a little perspective tweak. We'll see. Let's hang on and see how it goes. All right, let's jump in here, verse uh, 11, and I'm just going to start reading and explaining as we go. Uh, thank you, Casey, for reading that earlier. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. Remember, the first beast came out of the sea, and I'm not really sure what's the big deal about that, so I'm not going to spend time there. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. So this is a description. Remember, this beast is a symbolic representation of somebody who's going to lead our people lead the world towards one religion, towards worshiping the Antichrist, the first beast. 
Okay? Now, he's described as having two little horns. That Horns represent power, but they're little horns in a lamb. Now, Mary had a little lamb, right? We think of sheep and lamb, and we think nursery borders. You know, we think of beanie babies and stuffed animals, and we think harmless. I, I'm not worried. I'm not intimidated. And that's what this person's going to look like to us. You're going to watch the TV, and you're going to see this person speak with power and authority and maybe do some supernatural things. In fact, he will do some supernatural things. And you go, wow, that guy may be from God. That gal may be from God. But look how it's described. He had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. And he's referring back to chapters 12 and the beginning of 13. And if you remember, the dragon represents who? Satan. Okay? Spoke like a dragon. So the things he's going to say, that means you can't trust anything he says. Okay? Now, this... When we read this, it makes it look, it kind of it sets us up for something that's not true. It sets us up to think, oh, it's going to be obvious who this person is, right? You know, these people are not going to walk around with horns, okay? They're not going to walk around with seven heads and wearing a crown and all that. These are symbols, and these symbols are designed to teach us what to expect when these people come, okay? And it's not going to be obvious, and most people are going to buy the lie because most people are blind because they haven't had the blinders removed. Even though the kingdom of God is near, they haven't done what Jesus said to do next. Repent and believe the good news. And if you don't repent and believe the good news and you expect to see the truth, you're going to be disappointed. And you won't even know it until it's too late. Unless God's grace allows you to recognize that enough to open your eyes and to repent and believe. That is the way to true life. Repent means turn away from my way of doing life and believe that his way of doing life is best. It's not just better. It's not just good. It's the only good way. It's the only way that leads to life, abundant and eternal, okay? I I can't make it any more plain. I can't make you do this. I I don't want to make you do this. I can't convince you and talk you into this. This heart change that has to happen in your life for that to be true for you is something God does in you. I just facilitate by being a part of it. I'm just like the mailman that drives up to your mailbox, twists it, turns it, pulls it towards the road, shoves the mail in, closes it, and then drives off. I just deliver the mail. Okay? You have to read it and believe that it was meant for you. And that's what this is about. And you go, but this is nuts, Darren. You're reading about dragons and beasts and lambs with horns that talk like dragons. And do you not watch Lord of the Rings? Do you guys not watch movies and go, oh, this is so cool. This is so realistic. Yeah, that was realistic. Yeah, I always love it when people talk about Marvel comics movies and DC movies. They go, yeah, the DC movies, they're so much more realistic than the Marvel ones. Really? You're going to go there as far as realistic? Okay, all right, so uh, let's just keep going here. This stuff is crazy to listen to, right? I get that. I get that Christians follow a guy who died on a Roman cross and believe he came back to life and that that's crazy to a lot of people in our world. I get that. And more and more as we talk to people, they're more and more willing to go, you're nuts if you believe that, right? You'd realize that, right? You believe a a, a book that's too, yes, I do. And I'm willing to die on that belief. There's just too much evidence for me to go anywhere else. I've not found anything that even gets in the neighborhood of believability compared to what I've done and spent learning here. 
archaeologically, philosophically, um, uh, archaeologically, oh, I said that, um, historically, logically, rationally, experientially, and I could go on, right? When I look at it in all of those dimensions, I see a reasonable faith. It still requires faith, but a reasonable faith. And all of us that read and believe history are all exercising a reasonable faith because not one of you can prove to me that George Washington ever lived. You have to go to a source who saw him, and you have to believe that that source is credible enough to say, yeah, he really was the first president of the United States and all of that, right? We read historical documents, and we believe them because we think, well, of course they're true. That's proof. No, it's evidence. All right, I'm sorry. I'm off track. Okay, let's go back to uh, the Revelation 13. Okay, so now what we're going to do now, we're going to read verse 12, and then it's going it's to summarize 13, 14, and 15, and then 15 is going to be fleshed out in verses 16, 17, and 18. Okay? So this is what's going to happen to those who follow the false prophet, the second beast, and this is what's going to happen to those who don't. Okay? And I don't know which camp you're in, but you're about to find out what's going to happen, so hey, let's read and see. Okay? All right, verse 12, it, it, that is the second beast, the false prophet, I'm using those interchangeably, it exercised all the authority of the first beast, that would have been the Antichrist, on its behalf. Now, why is he doing that? What happened to the Antichrist? And you may remember this from last week. And made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. So notice the first thing he does. He makes people worship this first beast. Okay, I don't know about you, but I don't like people making me do anything. And when you're talking about making me worship something I don't even believe in, that's, that's a hard sell, but it's not going to be, it's going to be what he does. Okay, so, but here's why I'm going, those folks are, folks are going to be so willing to do it. Because he describes the first beast, this is the last part of verse 12, whose fatal wound had been healed. Go back to verse 3, when it's describing the first beast. One of the heads of the first, of the first beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. Now, remember last week we said that Satan loves to f- counterfeit the things of God. He loves to fake it. He loves to pretend because he, he, he wants to be God. He wants to be worshipped. And so he's doing everything he sees God do, but he's twisting it and corrupting it. And so we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so we've got Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, the unholy trinity. All right, and, and what happened to Jesus? He died, Roman cross, was buried in a tomb, and rose on the third day, just like he had been prophesied for a thousand years plus. Okay, that, by the way, oh, we just say that. Wow, hello, but anyway, odds aside, let's keep moving. So, so what does he do? He has his antichrist, he allows his antichrist to be killed, and then he allows it to be sort of brought back. It says healed, resurrected. He's able to speak. Now, he's... he's He's not able to do everything. He's not the same, and he's not better. When Jesus came back. He was in his new resurrected body, and he could do things his human, normal human body couldn't do. And so new and improved for Jesus, not so much for Antichrist, which is consistent with what Satan is effectively able to do. Okay? So, so the false prophet is going, worship the old Antichrist that was, re- that was killed and now is alive, sort of. Okay, now watch how that plays out. Verse 13, and it performed great signs. So the, the false prophet is performing great signs. That means he's doing miracles. Here's an example. Even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Now, I don't know why they don't say lightning because to me that's, you talk about red hot fire, white hot fire, I think of lightning. Okay, I think back to Elijah in 2 Kings 18. I think it is, might be 1 Kings 18. And I think when he prayed his 60-second prayer, 
And bam, God dropped fire on the altar, and it was, and it just consumed the sacrifice to prove to the prophets of Baal who the one true God was. So when we see fire come from heaven, most people think, hmm, only God can do that. Well, this false prophet is going to be very convincing, right? Because he's going to do it. He's going to do that. So he's appeared to raise the dead. He's appeared to call fire from heaven. Do you not think he's going to be convincing to a lot of people in our world that he's from God? He's going to be convincing. Verse 14, because of the signs, and that's another word for miracles and what they do, because of the signs, the beast, the second beast was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, because of those signs, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. That's that phrase that we keep seeing, and that's a description of the people in the world who will not repent and turn to God. They do not believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that is the bulk of the people that are left. They will believe that he is special, and they will, they will obey him, okay? The inhabitants of the earth, they'll be deceived. The, this beast, the second beast, look what else it does. It's still in verse, uh, still in verse 14. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast, that's the first one, who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Now, when I think of that, I think of the story in Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and King Nebuchadnezzar had the people erect a giant, right, big statue of him, and they were to bow down. Every time the, the music played, they were to come and gather around this giant idol and bow down and worship. And if you didn't do that, fiery furnace you go. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, sons of Israel in exile in Babylon said, we worship the one true God and we're not bowing down to your statue. And so into the fiery furnace they go and out they come without a singe because Jesus enters with them and delivers them without harm. Okay. So this, that's what comes to mind when I read this. But that's the drama we're talking about. That's the, the magnitude of things that are going to be happening in our world that are going to cause people to be talking about nothing else but this false prophet. And he's going to be false, not just because of the things he's doing, but the things that he says. And his one world religion's doctrine is going to be one that is welcomed by the masses, but hell, hell that's the source of it, making people hell-bound. All right, so he continues. He deceived the inhabitants of the earth in order it kept in beast in honor of the beast who was to be wounded. Verse 15. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. Oh, great. This God's going to kill me because I'm not going to bow down before it. All right, so, but it doesn't sound like it can do much else. Okay, so there's a statue idol that the second beast erects of the first beast, and it can speak, ventriloquist, really speak, we don't know, um, and he is going to, they're going to kill anybody that doesn't bow down. Now, there's another way that you can also show that your allegiance to the beast is legit, and that's going to be talked about later when it talks about taking the mark of the beast, and we'll get into that in just a second. All right, verse 16. This beast, the second beast, also forced all people great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, so there's nobody left out, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads. Why? So that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. And then this last verse. This calls for wisdom. Let the person... Let, let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, 
for it is the number of a man, that number is 666. Okay, so we've heard some of these things. Culturally, these things are still out there, um, and people still talk about them. In fact, maybe a lot more than ever. Who knows? But so what is this about, and how, what are we to take away from this? First of all, it does not tell us what the mark is, okay? It doesn't say it's a stamp, a brand, a, 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 a chip. We don't know what it is, okay? So anybody that's talking about this is speculating, and that's fine if that's, just recognize it for what it is. It's speculation, okay? I don't even know how literal to take it, but there seems to be a sense in which it's real enough that it's going to cause people who do not receive it to not be able to carry on normal economic transactions. Now think about what's happening. We have a one-world government, we have a one-world religion. So what do, you, what, do, what do people in charge of that want to be? In control? What do they, they have an agenda. They're trying to make things happen. Okay? And how do you do that? Well, you, you use fear and you use technology or whatever's available to cause people to have to do what it is you want them to do. Study your history books and just study totalitarian regimes and you will see that the MO is already out there. They're just going to do the latest, more sophisticated version of that when they take control and it'll be on a global scale. All right? So what will Christians do if they don't take, what will people who truly believe they can tell the difference, what will they do? And that's the question, right? What will we do? How will we, how will we get food? How will we buy and sell things? You know, maybe I need to store up, you know, seven years worth of things in my basement. And this is where, you know, this is where I want to go. Okay, pump the brakes. Okay. And let's, let's, let's think about what's really in, in play here. Because if it's really all about this life, then yeah, I get why you would be thinking in those terms. If it's really all about surviving in this world, and that's all you care about, which means you're taking this sliver of eternity and you're going like this with it, then, yeah, think about those kinds of things and go build a a compound in uh, Idaho where you're far away from everything and see if you can ride this thing out, okay? But that's not what God calls us to. Not most of us, okay? Because I can't be a witness to my neighbor if I'm in Idaho buried in a bomb shelter, Plus, the view's not very good, okay? Oh, Idaho's beautiful, but if you're underground, okay? So, think about perspective, right? To live is Christ, to die is gain, Paul says. Now, if I believe that's true, that means I don't, I don't fear death, and I'm ready to go anytime. I may not be looking for it. I'm not trying to go jump in front of cars and say, take me home, but... I'm open to that. I'm, I'm open. I'm ready. I'm not f- afraid of that. But some Christians are going to be alive during this time. And you know what? They're going to figure it out. God's going to take care of his people, but that doesn't mean he's not going to let them be imprisoned. We've already seen that in verse 10. They, some will be captive and some will be killed, if not most of them. Okay? But to live is Christ, to die is gain, all right? Here's what God is going to protect you from. He's going to protect you from satanic oppression, okay? You're not going to be able, if you're a follower of Christ, you're not going to take that mark. You're just not going to do it. You're going to have the resolve. God's going to give you the resolve to say no, to find a way out of it, okay? It's not going to be something, and it's not, you're not going to be tricked into it, okay? It's like, oh, you know, it's like God can't stop something like that from happening, right? You're my, you're my son or my daughter, and, and they're going to trick you. Oh, he can, he's going he's to take care of his people. 
but he's going to allow his people to go through suffering and death. Why would he do that? For the same reason he let his son go through it. Don't think that we're better, you know, we're like, oh, well, you know, Jesus died, so we don't have to. No, we said we're following him, so we follow him in life, and we follow him in death, and we follow him into eternity. That's why we can say the best is yet to come, because it is. If you believe, and if you don't, then you don't know what's to come, because I don't know what you'd be basing your future on. How do you know the future? How do you know anything about what's to come? How is your whole life philosophy formed if you don't know? What are you basing your future on? Think about that. You can say, well, this sounds crazy. Why would I believe that? Well, because there's 2,000 years of, of a growing movement of people who are reading this and find credibility in this when you look at the whole story and you read it in context and you understand that this would not just, not just what this means to us today, but it meant something to them back then. Let me explain. This relates to the mark. So one of the basic interpretations of Scripture is that you, it cannot say today what it didn't mean before. So it can't mean to me something it didn't mean to first century Christians, okay? This was written in the first century, roughly 95, AD 95, all right? And uh, it's written within the time when people who, who were alive when Jesus was around, some of them are still alive. John, the one who wrote this down, was one of them, okay? So Jesus died roughly AD 33. This is written roughly AD 95, so do the math. And don't ask me to. And that's roughly the time that's passed. And so you have the movement of Christ and the early Christians started after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, roughly 33, and the church began to grow. And if you want to see that story, read that story, it's the book of Acts. Just start reading. Luke gives us a historical account of that. Okay? And he gives the first basic 30 years. So it goes roughly from 30 to 60 AD, AD 60. All right? So in 68, AD 68... A guy named Nero took his life. He committed suicide. Now, Nero was an emperor of Rome, and he was a wicked bad dude who killed his mama and didn't really care that he killed his mama, and he would light up Christians and put them on posts at his parties so that he would have light because he persecuted Christians, and he did all kinds of hellacious things. He was horrible persecuting people, and Christians in particular. He persecuted Jews, and he just went after them. They, it is believed that the fires that swept through the, Rome, the city of Rome were, that were blamed on the Christians was set by Nero himself. Okay, now we, we don't know for sure. But that's the kind of mindset he had. And then the emperor after him, Domitian, the one who Domitian came, he was the one later who, who was alive during the time when John wrote this. So that would have been years later. So there were some guys in between. He was also a big time persecutor. So the people who were alive when the book of Revelation started getting circulated into the churches were being fiercely persecuted. Now, there was a story that started going around about Nero, that Nero had died, but had come back to life. Or maybe he didn't quite die and he was alive. And they started to believe, and there was these rumors, and they became myths and legends. So convincing that people started worshiping Nero. And there was this whole emperor cult called Nero worship. And it was in the east. And you could, you could go to the east, and you'd find people worshiping, and they believed that's where he was. Now, this is why early Christians thought that Nero was the Antichrist, the Antichrist. It's because when you so, so if you take the Hebrew alphabet, and if you, or if you even you could do this with the Koine Greek alphabet, which is what the Bible is written in. Old Testament's written in Hebrew, ancient Hebrew. New Testament's written in ancient Koine Greek. Okay, can't read those aren't live languages; those are dead languages today. 
And both of those languages use letters to communicate numbers. So in other words, they didn't have numbers. They, used num they had numbers, but their numbers weren't separate characters like we use number one, two, three, four. They used letters to represent numbers. And so you could literally, your name, if you spelled your name, you could, you could come up with a series of numbers. Okay? And so for example, the number 666 spells in Greek beast. It's kind of creepy, isn't it? Now, I don't know how it does this because I didn't dig deep enough. Same source says it also spells Nero Caesar. Okay? Again, you're just going to have to go, he doesn't know what he's talking about, and do some research, okay? But I'm just, I, I didn't read, that's not in the Bible. I'm telling you what I'm reading and other things that I'm reading. This is what they're saying. So the reason I point that out is whether that's true or not, people believed it was true in that day, and that's why they saw Nero. Because when you describe the uh, false prophet and the Antichrist in chapter 13, and then you look at what Nero did, you're going, yeah, that's the same guy. And it's not. Because we're still here 2,000 years later, so we know he is an an antichrist in history, little a, and John talks about those in 1 John, but he's not the antichrist, okay? Or apparently he didn't do enough miracles or something, so, okay? But you see what I'm saying? History is building, and, the, and, and Jesus says the birth pangs are growing in intensity and frequency as we move towards this future history that Revelation describes, Okay? And Revelation is not telling us anything new. It is using imagery and truth from ancient documents even to its day and it's pulling them together and pulling them together in a way that that makes all kinds of sense when you study the whole book and you recognize the symmetry and the and the uh, history and the symbolism and how it all lines up okay don't believe this because i said it dig study read it for yourself this is not written for scholars this is written for ordinary people like you and me to read and say okay what do i do with this and i promise you if you will ask the Lord to help you understand this, he will help you understand this. Will he answer all the questions you want answered? No. Okay? He's already said, nobody knows when Jesus is coming back. Jesus didn't even know when he was coming back when he was on earth, okay? The angels don't know, okay? The Father knows, and now Jesus knows. I'm sure the Holy Spirit knows because he's always in, right? So, but nobody knows. And so I'm not going to sit here and do the math and try to figure it out because nobody knows. But he's coming, and so here's the question, right? There's a God. You're not him. Are you ready to meet him? Because he's coming. Jesus is coming back, and he's going to start by setting things right, and he's going to judge people. And you say, well, that sounds awful. How can, who, who, who gives him the right to judge me? He created you. Don't tell me he doesn't have the right to do that. And you say, well, he didn't create me. Okay, then whoever did it has the right to judge you. Somebody has the right to judge you. Whose standard do you want to use? There's a standard here of holiness. Is that not good enough? Uh, there's a standard here of justice, and let's, let's give people what they deserve based on what they've done. Punish them appropriately. But, but this is also a standard of love and mercy that says, even though you deserve justice, there's going to be a time when I give people mercy. Not everybody, but I could give people mercy, and I'm not just going to look the other way and not judge the, the, the sin. He still judges the sin. That's why the cross happened. God judged the sin of the world in one place so that he could forgive some. Who does he choose to forgive? Those who are willing to come to him on his terms and bow before him and acknowledge he's real, he's true, and he loves us. I realize that that's a lot to swallow. But that doesn't make it not true. 
right? So will you be able to recognize the true gospel? And I know I'm long, I'm sorry. But let me just give you this. There's two false gospels that I think are pretty big that will help you recognize, okay? And one's universalism and one's inclusivism, and they're pretty similar, but there's a, there's a distinction. Universalism says everybody's going to heaven, okay? There's a, there's a, yeah, there's books written about this all out there, right? Everybody's going to heaven, all right? There's no logic behind it, but there's an explanation. People have their reasons, okay? Explore it. Check it out if you think that might be true because I don't want you to just say, oh, that's, I like the sound of that. No, you won't when you understand it. Second is inclusivism, okay? Inclusivism says if you follow all the religions and put them in one big pot, okay, we're all in this together. We're all at the base of the mountain. We're all climbing the mountain, and God's at the top. We're just all taking different trails. And if, as long as you climb the mountain, you'll get there. But if you don't climb the mountain, then you're going to hell because you're, you're, you're not included. You're, you're, you're different. Then that's another false teaching, another big category of that, okay? And Jesus says, and, God, and the Bible teaches, that God, you can't get to climb the mountain. It's too hard to climb. You can't climb it and get to him. It's too high. It's too craggy and rocky. You don't have enough equipment. You don't have a helicopter that can get that high. You can't get to God because he's holy and you're not, and I'm not, okay? But this is the good news, that while we can't get to him, he came down to get us. He came down to the foot of the mountain, and he went to all these people who don't deserve it, and he said, I love you, and I'm making a way for you to get to me, okay? Because I know you can't get to me. No, you don't deserve it but I'm building a bridge to you so that you can come to me if you want to. And then he gives you the choice to resist or embrace him. He's a gentleman and he will not force himself, but he opens the door and he welcomes you in if you come. He says, I stand at the door and knock. And that's not just for, that's, that's for, okay, so I, I get it in Revelation, that's for the church, okay, wake up church. But the truth is, it's appropriate for anybody if you've closed the door against the Lord, then let him back in. Because he wants to come back in. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, which we're getting ready to do in a minute, when we do that, we're remembering that God punished sin so that we wouldn't have to be punished if we chose to follow him. If we surrender our lives to Jesus and live for something worth living for instead of for ourselves and our selfish agendas, then God says, I can do something with that. And I can do something that's good for you, and I can do that, something that's good for the world. And if we will just set aside our hubris for long enough to actually embrace and think about that, I think we might recognize that there's truth there. But we have to humble ourselves. There's no other way. You can tell me I'm wrong all you want. I don't care. It doesn't matter what I think. It only matters what's true. And I want you to find the truth but you're not going to find the truth sitting back going, I've got this figured out. I don't need to look into this. I don't care. I'm, I'm just going to do what I'm doing. That's foolishness. That's just foolishness. And I, I want more for you than that. So let's pray. Lord God, I, I, um, I don't mean to be harsh, God, and I know you don't want me to be. And I'm, I, I repent of anything I've said that's been ugly or harsh or come across unloving, God. I that's not my, my intent at all here today. But Lord, I care, and, I, and so sometimes I get intense because it matters what we believe. 
We can't just get on the train because we believe. We got to get on the train that's going the right place. It matters what we believe. And we believe, everybody believes in something. Even if we believe there is no God, that still requires faith. Can't prove it. So God, I pray that you would soften hearts and, and get people to a place where they at least consider the fact that they might be wrong. That they would get off their high horse long enough to consider the truth, to consider the facts, to just look into what has been said and written and quit talking like they know. We live in a world where everybody thinks they know all they need and everything's at the touch of a keyboard, but knowledge is not our savior. Wisdom is. And you say that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And so, God, I pray that we would recognize that when we're proud, we don't fear you in a healthy way. We think we're God. We're no different than Satan himself. That's hard to hear. It's hard to say, but it's true. So, God, I pray that you will cause us to humble ourselves. Me too. Help me humble myself. I still have so much to learn. But God, I know there's people listening online right now or people in the room who haven't figured this out yet. And I know you love them and I know you want to help them if they will just reach out to you and ask that you will meet them in their place of need and you'll give them what they need to understand and believe what it is that is going to save them from the future that comes. And I pray that, that you will help us. Maybe, we've, maybe we know, maybe we have this figured out to a degree, and we, we're walking in faith. That doesn't mean we've got it all figured out, and it certainly gives us no right to stand as if we've got this special truth and we're better and superior. We are not. And if we just look at our lives long enough to recognize that we've got a long way to go, maybe we'll humble ourselves too. We need to. People are attracted to you, God, when your people walk humbly with you, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Lord, help us. We need it. Your people, we need it. We're not good at that. Pray it in Christ's name. Amen.